We are starting our second week in our series entitled, That's Dangerous Prayer That Changes Things. And last week, we began this series of dangerous prayers by looking at something that we say often. We ask God to teach us. We say, teach me, O God. And we say this in in many ways in the hopes that God will reveal deep, dark secrets about Him to us. But really what this is supposed to mean, what it really means is, God, show me those areas in which I need to change. Teach me is saying, God, rebuke, correct, and train me to walk in obedience, even if it's hard or if it's difficult for me to hear. So today, the the dangerous prayer I want to focus on is, search me, O God. And when I was working on this message and I thought about that, search me, O God, somehow my childhood came to be and I thought about my favorite game as a kid, hide and seek. And one of the various or the versions of hide and seek that we used to always play up in our neighborhood in Custer is we played this game called kick the can. And basically kick the can is outside hide and seek. You put a coffee can in the middle of a field. Everybody goes and hides and somebody goes and tries to find them. And if you get found, you have to go back to the middle. But inevitably somebody would sneak back to base and they would kick the can and everybody be free to go hide once again. And the reason I use this analogy, this whole search me, is I think we want God to search us and we want God to reveal things within us, but all too often our friends and our family and our culture will simply come in and kick the can and we need to be found once again. This isn't just a one-time deal. We need God to continually search us. So teach me is saying, show me my errors, but search me is saying, Rip those errors out of my life. So Psalm 139, 23, 24 is a passage of Scripture in which we see David asking God to try him and to know his thoughts. And he says this, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So he says in this, he says, use any and every test upon me by fire or other means. Let me be examined. Don't look just at the desires of my heart, but any thoughts that are in my head. See, this is a complete begging for God to disassemble his entire being so that he may be found righteous. And that is a dangerous prayer. David was a man who was determined to explore the recesses of his own heart. David was a a man of courage. He slew a lion and a bear and he went out to meet Goliath, but he had never until now displayed such courage as to look into his own heart to combat the sin in which lives so deeply within, within the human heart. So the question is, is why did David do this? Why did he do this? Well, he loved God. And God knew him, and really, God had never brought this up before. God didn't come to David and say, Oh, David, now I'm going to look upon your heart, and I'm going to search within you. See, this was all David's doing. So what prompted this thought process where he would cry out to God and say, God, search me? Well, I believe it was his desire to have every evil thing removed from his heart, his mind, and his life. And it overtook his desire to be satisfied with where he was in his life at that moment. See, he wasn't satisfied with just praying or just worshiping or just attending 
temple worship times. He had a deep desire to rid himself, all of which came between him and God. Think about that for a moment. A desire to remove absolutely everything that was keeping him from God. Oh God, search me that you may remove every little thing that separates me from you. What happens if you pray that prayer? If you say, God, take away and find every possible thing that is keeping me from you. My guess is it would take away some interests. It would take away some hobbies. It may even take away some family members because there are things in our lives that keep us away from God. He says, search me that those hidden sins might be exposed before a holy and just God so that I might change. Search me that I might become revival, that the whole world will know who I serve. And once again, I say that's a dangerous prayer. The book of 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. See, the Lord is already searching and does not need permission to review our lives and our hearts. And in fact, there's something about relinquishing our rights that we think that we have and acknowledging that He already knows everything. See, God already knows that we're a mess. God already knows those struggles in our lives, but it's different if we say, God, search me. When David asks God to search him or search his heart, he's not referring to that which pumps and circulates blood throughout his body. No, he's referring to the seat of emotions that... It, and will that is within each one of us. Search me. The idea that God requires our permission to do anything could simply be referred to as nearly satanic. And the reason I say that is it presents this universe where control is retained by humans and not by God. It, in an essence, makes the claim that we are like God, but we don't hold the reins to anything. God doesn't work for us. God's power is not restrained by us. See, if we prescribe to that idea, it's known as the permission doctrine that reduces God to simply a genie. We ask for it and He gives it to us. See, in this idea, He's not all-powerful. He's a wish granter that is, lets us pretend to be His keeper. And that's a dangerous thought process in itself. But in, in praying, oh God, search me, you're simply acknowledging the power that He already has. In the book of Exodus, chapter 21, in ancient Israel, servants, essentially slaves, were called to be released every seven years. So at the end of their seven-year service, they could be released. They could go free if they wanted, but they had another option. If they loved their masters, they could choose to become lifelong servants to the masters, and the choice was yours. They would simply be given the choice and they could leave or they could say, no, I love you, Master, and I want to stay. It was their choice. They were granted a moment of consent, but that consent would be eternally surrendered if they chose to remain to their Masters. That was their one chance. At the end of the seven years, they could go, but if they said, no, I want to stay, they were making a lifelong decision. Think about God. He grants us that moment of consent, but we call it free will. Right? God tells us the way that we are supposed to go, but He says, here's the catch. You can choose to do anything that you want. 
And the moment that we choose to go free and live for ourselves, serving ourselves, or we choose to be a bondservant of God for eternity, we're given that choice. You know, this, this idea sounds a bit negative, but you see the bondservant returned because of the love they had for their master. Even Mary, the mother of Jesus, referred to herself as a bondservant to the Lord in the book of Luke. The whole idea of asking God to search us is saying that we have chosen to belong to Him. We've chosen, we've said, God, I know that you already know all of this, but, but search me because I belong to you. Not just in theory or service, but our entire being is consecrated to Him. See, we ask God, search every part of me in order to make me pure, holy, righteousness, and without blemish that I might be the best servant that you have ever had. May I bring glory to you and that you alone and others might see the joy of the Lord that radiates through me because I belong to you. See, we're given that choice, but we need to pray that prayer. I think oftentimes I want to pray that prayer, right? I want to pray, God, search me, make me the best version of me so that when people see me, they see you. But then I get scared because I'm going to have to make some changes in my lives. So when God searches our hearts, what is He really looking for? I mean, He already knows what is there, but when He searches our heart, I want to give you today four things that God is looking for. And number one, it can't escape the list. God is looking for the sin in our lives. So the book of Habakkuk, the prophet says to God in this, it says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. Now this doesn't mean that God has to close His eyes or He turns His back when people start to sin. It's rather a recognition of God's righteous character and in context, part of a larger discussion of God's methods in dealing with sin. See, Habakkuk begins with a series of questions directed to God and Habakkuk saw the sin and the degradation gripping the nation and he took his concerns to the Lord. So as I read this, I ask you who today can read this cry and not see the same questions so many are now asking of God. So he says this, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. See, remember, God is still omniscient and omnipresent, so He knows about sin and He is present when it is committed. He doesn't wink at sin or turn a blind eye to it. He sees it, and as Habakkuk rightly asserts, he cannot see it favorably. See, what bothered the prophet is that in using Babylonians to punish punished Judah, God seemed to be accepting the Babylonians' idolatry, his, their violence, and their greed. See, God doesn't accept the sin. See, God assures His prophet, though, in chapter 2 that the sins of Babylonian will, Babylon will not be tolerated either. See, the Chaldeans were dispatched as God's instrument to judge the wickedness of Judah, and the Chaldeans' own sin will also be judged. But judgment will come in God's time and in His way. So in this chapter, there's this confusion over the idea that God's 
eyes are too pure to look on evil. And it's led some to believe that when a Christian sins, the Holy Spirit leaves them or her because the Holy Spirit cannot look upon sin. But that's a contradiction to Scripture. It's a contradiction because the Bible's teaching tells us that believers have been sealed by the Holy Spirit and the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. See, the Holy Spirit dwells inside Christians, although He is grieved by our sin, but He doesn't abandon us. The key is that our sin is paid for by Jesus and fully forgiven. God can't tolerate sin, and that's why He sent His Son to destroy the devil's work. If we go to the book of Romans, chapter 6, 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when God looks at us and He looks at our sin, what is He going to find? It's not that He doesn't already see our sin. The key question is, will we, will we allow Him to remove it and come to that place of repentance? Number two, when God searches us, He looks for our love for people. <clears throat> the book of John chapter 4, verse 7 says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. See, the first and most important component of our Christian love is that God loved us first. See, God loves us, but our sins are a barrier that separate us from Him. No matter how hard we try, we can't get past it on our own. So God sent Jesus to be the sacrifice we needed for our sins. And when Jesus died on the cross, the barrier of sin was torn down and the relationship between God and man was restored. Because I have to remind you today that Jesus also loves us. In fact, He loved us so much, He knew He was going to face betrayal. He knew that He was going to face pain and death on a cross, but He willingly came to earth anyway. And He laid down His life for us, and He did it so that we could have eternal life with Him. See, without the great love of Jesus, we wouldn't have salvation or the assurance of heaven. And it's only because of the love of God the Father and Jesus the Son that we can return the love to Him. See, Love in a Christian's life isn't an option. It's a commandment straight from the mouth of our Savior, and our love should reflect the love of Jesus has for us. If we truly love one another, then we will give the very best of ourselves as Jesus did for us. And when we show our love for other Christians, it's going to be evident to the rest of the world, and people will look at us. And they'll see how we treat one another, and they know that, we'll follow Je that we follow Jesus because of the way that we love one another. So the question is, what will they see? Will we be a good witness by our actions and turn them to Christ? Or will they take one look at us and decide that, you know what, Christianity just isn't for me. I can already do that on my own. 1 John 4 says this, We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So I ask you, do we actually love others? I mean, there's some people that are really easy to love, but we're not just called to love those people. We're called to love those people who per persecute us. We're called to love those people who treat us poorly. We're called to love because God loves us. Do we 
truly love others? If not, will we allow our hearts to be broken for that which God loves? Number three, when God searches us, He looks for our obedience. Anybody else? Is this a difficult? Is it tough for you to be obedient? I know one of my personality flaws is I hate being told what to do. I mean, I get over it because I need to, but I hate being told what to do. But God looks for our obedience. And one of the ways, many ways, to worship and glorify God is through our obedience. See, living in obedience to God in all things, even the mundane, the boring elements of life, is a great way to show your love and your respect for Him. See, obedience is also a soothing way to draw near to Him and to grow in your relationship with Him. For many reasons, obedience is an important part of a Christian's relationship with Christ. So the question remains, why must we obey? The book of Genesis tells us, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. See, God created us. He created man to rule over the earth. He created us to shepherd the animals and to work the ground. And God doesn't need us to do any of this. God certainly doesn't need us to take care of His creation as He's almighty and He's all-powerful. But yet, He asks us to do it anyway. He asks us to be obedient and do it anyway. And why is it? Well, one answer is that God is calling us to obedience and a relationship with Him through our obedience. By obeying His call to take care of the earth, we learn more about Him and can grow in our understanding of His heart and His desires for our lives. See, obedience also leads to personal growth. Every command God asks of us isn't just for His sake, but it's for our sake as well. The call to obedience is for our benefit, and He knows what is best for us and how to grow us to be stronger people and followers in Christ. And to do that, we have to be obedient. We have to foster good habits. The book of Galatians chapter 6 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in a due season we will reap if we do not give up. So we have to remember that you reap what you sow. And when we choose to shepherd what God has given us, we show Him that we are grateful for the blessings that He has bestowed upon us. When we take care of what He has given to us, we show Him that we are capable of being obedient to His commands, whether they're big or they're little. By practicing obedience in the small things, we're laying the foundation for obedience in the big things. And when it may be hard to trust Him and obey those things. See, fostering good habits in the small things God asks of you will help make obedience in the bigger tasks easier. By fostering good habits of spiritual discipline and sowing seeds of selflessness and sacrifice day after day, you begin to resemble Jesus 
more and more. So the question is, do we walk in obedience? And if the answer is no, are we willing to have our hearts searched to bring us to that place of obedience? Number four, when God searches us, He looks for our holiness. See, obedience leads to holiness, and holiness will lead to walking in the favor of the Lord. God will search us to cleanse us in order to insert His holiness within us. It says, be holy as I am holy. To discover the impact that holiness of God has in real life, we need to turn to Scripture and look at the book of Isaiah chapter 6. And I want you to look at this as we look at the prophet's response to his startling vision in verse 5. We've heard this verse before. It says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts. If you remember in Scripture, Isaiah is looking, looked and he's realized how unclean he truly is. This is what happens when we ask God to search us. See, Isaiah doesn't have a wow response to God's holiness. Yes, he's blown away, but he's blown away in brokenness because he recognizes how morally and separated he is from the Lord. And it's only in the face of holiness of God that you and I, like Isaiah, will ever be broken by the disaster of sin that lives within us. You see, we have a problem. And the problem is this. Sin doesn't always appear sinful to us. In fact, quite the opposite. Oftentimes, it's, it's attractive. It's even magnetic. It draws us to it. But it's only in the face of holiness of God that you'll fully realize that sin is more than a list of bad behaviors and more than breaking this, this list of abstract rules. Rather, sin is this. Sin is a disastrous condition of the heart that causes us to willingly and repeatedly rebel against the authority of God and do what we were never intended to do in the first place. But the good news, it's the holiness of God that tells us that since we cannot escape from ourselves, we all need a Savior. We need a Savior who can do what we can't. A Savior who can rescue us from us. See, you simply cannot consider the holiness of God without also mourning your sin and crying out for the grace of Jesus. If, if we were in that moment of Isaiah and truly seeing God, would we be in awe, but would we also get that thought of, I am lost, I am unclean, and I am surrounded by those who are unclean. See, holiness divines, defines our calling Within, with God. Because holiness is the essence of God's character. It becomes our calling as His children by inheritance. In fact, Peter says this, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So here's the best way to understand it. You are holy, and you've been called to be holy. 
And if you're God's child, you stand before Him as, a right, as righteous because the perfect righteousness of Jesus has been given over to your personal account. There's been a transaction to your account and God's holiness has come to you. But there's a second aspect of this as well. You're holy because you've been bought with the blood of Jesus and you are no longer your own. To say you're holy means that you've been set apart by God's grace for God's purpose. Your allegiance is no longer to the kingdom of your success and your happiness, but to the progress of His kingdom of glory and grace. And where do you do this? You do this wherever you are, whomever you're with, and whatever you're doing. If we go back to the book of Psalms 51, chapter 19, it says, Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. See, it's that understanding when we say, search me, that says, God, I know that I'm not where I'm supposed to be, but today I'm asking you to make my heart pure again. Make it clear. Renew that spirit within me. If we truly want to grow in our faith and our walk with Christ, we have to pray some dangerous prayers. We have to pray to God to teach us. We have to pray to God to search within us. And this week we ask God to search us, not because He can't already see what, what is in our hearts, but because we need to be reminded of what's in there as well. See, it's then and only then that we start to grow and we, we begin to change, and only then can we be made pure. See, only then can we truly accept the divine gift of the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. So when we ask God to search us, when we ask God to look at the sin in our lives, we're asking Him to free the barrier that's bringing us from a closeness with Him. When we ask God to search within us, to ask us, do we truly love people? Is it just some people or is it all people? When we ask God to search in us, to find the obedience within us, we, we ask God to allow us to follow what God has asked us to do. When we ask God to search us and we look, ask God to search for the holiness within us, we ask Him to, we ask to help us to recognize His holiness and to, for Him to make us pure. So as we close out this message today, the question is, is are you ready to pray that next dangerous prayer, that prayer that's going to be difficult, that prayer that's going to be, cause change to happen? Are you ready to ask God to search you, to begin to change you, to bring you to that next level in your relationship with Him so that you can begin to spread His glory and His kingdom to those around you? Let's pray. Gracious and Heavenly Father, we thank You for this opportunity to come together today. Lord, we, we thank You for Your message and Your Word, Lord. We thank You for the divine Scripture that is written, that is written not only for the world, but written for us. We ask for your understanding and discernment to fall upon us, Lord. We ask for us to be able to read and understand Scripture and how to apply it to our lives, Lord. And today, Lord, we ask for you to search within us, to find those elements within our lives that are keeping us from you, to keeping us away from you, away from a relationship with you, away from the life that you want us to live the, the gloriness and the happiness and the, the splendor that only comes from your divine power, from the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. All this we ask today, Lord. We give all glory to you, God. 
It is you who will strengthen us. It will. It is you who will deliver us from ourselves. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this church and this congregation. And all this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.